My name is Anthony P. Richards. I'm a pastor and I started this podcast channel to equip, encourage, inspire and challenge you to passionately live to your potential in Christ through the Word of God. For more information, you can go to my YouTube channel, Anthony P. Richards. Welcome as we continue our journey through the Word of God and today we are going to be looking at 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and we're going to be looking at just the first few verses this morning uh, or today I should say uh, because I don't know what time you're going to be watching this Uh, but uh, we're going to be looking at uh, verses 1 to 11 and uh, this is where uh, the Apostle Paul writing to the church in Corinth they've got issues amongst themselves He's dealing with constant issues of immorality, how they should live, how they should live with each other, what their conflicts are. And so now he's going to talk about a couple of other interesting topics. Number one being uh, lawsuits and how to handle legal issues between Christians. So he starts off in verse 1 of chapter 6. Dare any of you, what a strong way to start, dare any of you have a matter against each other, go to law before the unrighteous and not before the saints. Paul just literally can't believe what they're doing. Uh, One Christian in Corinth believed that he'd been wronged by another Christian and he went to the local courts. Go to the law before the unrighteous is how Paul puts it. And a local judge sat in a judgment seat like a civil magistrate would today. It was located in the heart of the marketplace and part of that was because Greek culture considered legal proceedings to be theatre. Uh, you know, it was like entertainment. You just go and watch during your lunch hour. And the word unrighteous, when he says here, go to the law before the unrighteous, means literally those who are unjust, those who are not justified by God. In other words, not saved. So why are the Corinthian churches trying to find justice from somebody who's not saved before God? And Paul is using the term unrighteous here in a religious sense. He's not using it in a moral sense. It isn't that the Corinthian judges were necessarily bad people or bad judges, but they were not Christians. So then Paul goes on in verse 2. Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world will be judged by you, are you unworthy to judge the smallest matters? Do you not know that we shall judge angels? How much more things that pertain to this life? If then you have judgments concerning things pertaining to this life, Do you appoint those who are least esteemed by the church to judge? I say this to your shame. Is it so that there is not a wise man among you, not even one, who will be able to judge between his brethren, but brother goes to law against brother, and that before unbelievers? Uh, Paul's Paul, you can just imagine him just being so exasperated as he's writing this. The saints will judge the world, we shall judge angels. Christians should be able to judge their own matters because of our eternal destiny. When we reign with Jesus Christ, we will, in one sense or another, judge the world and even judge angels. The idea of Christians judging angels is a little bit mind-blowing. I don't think it means that we're going to sit in judgment of the faithful good angels uh, as if we could penalise them for not being there and stopping bad stuff happening to us. Uh, But we will have a part in judging evil angels. And I think it reminds us that God's 
destiny for us when we give our lives to Jesus is quite amazing and more mind-blowing than we can think. Morgan, G. Campbell Morgan said, Is there any statement in the apostolic writings in certain senses which has more definite and tremendous implication of the union of the saints with their Lord that we shall judge angels? (laughs) Guzik said this, The destiny of redeemed men and women to one day be higher than the angels and to even sit in judgment of them must greatly annoy a certain high angel in heaven. He did not want to serve an inferior creature now and did not want that inferior creature to be raised up higher than even he. So he rebelled against God and is determined to keep as much of humanity as possible from sitting in judgment of himself. We can imagine the perverse, proud pleasure that Satan takes over every soul that goes to hell. Well, they won't sit in judgment over me. If Christians... You and me, anybody who's accepted the free gift of salvation, if we're being prepared for this amazing eternity and its amazing destiny, then Paul's saying, why do the Corinthian Christians uh, allow the least esteemed by the church, secular judges, to decide disputes amongst Christians? And so he says, is there not just one wise person amongst you? They were so proud of their wisdom, the church in Corinth. They were always sprouting off how wise they were. First uh, Corinthians chapter 1, you can see that. But their actions showed that they actually were not very wise at all. So when anybody ever tells you they're wise, it's probably a great indication that they're not. Uh, brother goes to law against brother. By his actions, Paul has uh, showed in other scriptures that he's not against legal action. He's not. In Acts chapter 22, verse 25, in Acts chapter 25, verses 10 to 11, he actually goes to the Roman courts for his rights. But Paul knew it was wrong when a brother goes to law against brother. It's important for Christians to be able to settle their disputes among themselves according to the principles in God's word. Uh, It can be done individually. It can be done through the church. It can be done through uh, Christian methods of arbitration. There's no reason for a Christian to sue another Christian. The, the Bible gives us every guideline to be able to solve it without doing that. Now, I don't think it means that we can't sue non-believers who wrong Christians. And it's it's a very important question, all of this, because we live in such a litigious society where everybody's looking for an opportunity to sue somebody. And Paul is saying that when it comes to matters between Christians, settle them the proper way according to the principles of the word of God. Paul also says, don't go and create your own legal system. Romans 13, 3 to 4, he says it's inappropriate for the state to handle criminal cases. Sorry, it's appropriate, not inappropriate. It's appropriate for the state to handle criminal cases. But Christians should be able to handle civil cases among themselves. So, Then we go on into verse 7. Now, therefore, it is already an utter failure for you that you go to law against one another. I mean, the language that Paul uses here is is like so strong. It's kind of humorous. You are an utter failure. You ever said that to somebody? You're not just, look, you're failing. You're an utter failure. It's an utter failure. Why do you not rather accept wrong? Why do you not rather let yourselves be cheated? The Corinthian church uh, and the people in it are just like modern-day Western people 
who are addicted to their rights. Well, it's my right to do this, and it's my right, and it's in the Bill of Rights, and it's in, my, it's in the Constitution, and it's what, you know. But clinging to your rights, the same as the church in Corinth, displays an utter failure to cling to the principles of the Word of God. See, Paul's saying just by going to court, you're losing. He's saying, look, you'd be better off accepting wrong. It'd be better to actually let yourself be cheated than to defend your rights at the expense of God's glory and the higher good of his kingdom. Do you trust that God can make right what man has made wrong? I do. I, I believe that if somebody wrongs you as a Christian and you forego your legal right, I believe that God can do whatever he, he wants to do to restore every need that you have and to bless you because of your adherence to the word of God. Paul called this person, in whoever this mysterious person was in Corinth that had this issue, to do something hard, give up your rights for the higher good of God and his kingdom. But the man wasn't being asked by Paul to just take a loss. Nobody who accepts being wronged by another believer and doesn't pursue legal action, they're not going to be a loser. God's not on the losing team. He's going to make it right. He's a just and fair God. You do what his word says, he'll take care of you. And ideally, the, the, Paul's saying, look, the church, you should have solved this. You, you should have settled this. But they failed to do that. And Paul said to this man, very simply, do not trust in those people who are unsaved, judges, trust in God. Trust in God. Um, Paul didn't say, why not suffer wrong instead of confronting the problem? No, he said, why not suffer wrong instead of bringing your dispute before unbelievers? Nothing wrong with going to that person who has wronged you and trying to work it out. So very clear guidelines, to be honest. We don't like them, by the way. There's a lot of things in the Bible we don't like, you know, particularly when it comes to rights. And if you're raised in uh, in certain Western countries and and cultures where your rights are everything this is going to be an offense to you this is going to rub you the wrong way oh you're going to be like oh i don't like somebody impinging on my rights it's my right uh you're right if you want to know what your rights are when it comes to the things of god the wages of sin are death you're you have a right to die and would you like to exercise that right or would you like to say no i'll take salvation thank you very much and all the things in the bible and i'm all good See, this is the comparison that we need to make. So Paul goes on in verse 8. No, you yourselves do wrong and cheat. You know, don't, don't be thinking you're all that, okay? You do these things to your brethren. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of God. An incredibly important passage of Scripture that we must understand. There is no place for dishonest dealing by Christians. None. Um, many people have rejected the things of God 
and turned away from the church because of dishonesty and cheating among Christians, and it's got to stop. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Okay, Paul's about to go on and list out some things here that that have a very significant eternal impact. Paul is speaking very strongly here to the Christian that went to the law courts to sue his fellow Christian. That's, that's the context of Paul saying this. Don't you realize how serious your sin is? The only thing you may gain from cheating your brother. So he's calling out the person who was wronged by somebody else. He's saying, listen, you want to sue this other guy or this other person. We don't know the, all the circumstances, but do you ever look at yourself and see what you do? Do you ever look at your life and, and, and realize that you've cheated other people? Paul's speaking very strongly. The only thing you gain from cheating your brother is eternity with the unrighteous, those not made right with God through Jesus Christ. Paul was not denying the man's salvation because he called him brethren, so he's saying you're part of us. But Paul is not going to allow the in the church in Corinth a religious faith that's separate from our actions. If a Christian can cheat and defraud his brothers without any conscience, then you can fairly ask the question, I don't know, are they really saved? I don't know. And the man who wronged his brother puts himself in bad company. Fornicators, idolaters, adulterers, homosexuals, sodomites, thieves, covetous, revilers, extortioners. None of those who live characterized by these sins will inherit the kingdom of God. Now, no doubt this man is reading this and thinking, okay, uh, sure, what I did to my brother isn't good, but it's not that bad. It's not as bad as what's on that list. Paul wants him to know how bad it was. Guzik, some very interesting observations on this particular passage. We shouldn't think that a Christian who has committed an act of fornication or homosexuality or any of the other listed sins is automatically excluded from the kingdom of God. Instead, since Paul describes these people by their sins, he means those who live lives that are dominated and characterized by these sins. So is an occasional act of fornication or homosexuality no big deal to God? Of course not. It is a significant matter because it goes against everything that we have been given in Jesus. And because a lifestyle of sin begins with a single act of sin. The man who cheated his brother had to see that if his life was dominated and characterized by sin, just as much as any of the other people Paul described in this list, he should also be just as concerned for his salvation as any of those other people. Okay, they're all Guzik's thoughts. And I, I think I think it's a good perspective that he presents there. Now let's talk about homosexuals, nor homosexuals. This is a very clear condemnation of a lifestyle of homosexuality. Those who wanted to justify the practice uh, and still want to justify a homosexual lifestyle say, oh, well, Paul's talking about homosexual prostitution, not a loving, caring, monogamous homosexual relationship. But you have to take it into context. There is no doubt that God's speaking of homosexual acts of all kinds because he uses the Greek word malakoi, which is the word homosexuals, which literally refers to male prostitutes. And he also uses the Greek word arsenikoitai, which is sodomites 
which is a generic term for all homosexual practice. Now, let's think about the type of world that Paul was living in and the type of world that he was uh, uh, that was going on in Corinth that he was writing to. It was a world the same as ours right now. It, it, they, they weren't uh, a, a, a culture that wasn't indulging in homosexuality or where it was in or part of the culture. Homosexuality was maybe more widespread than it is even today. 14 out of the 15 first Roman emperors were either bisexual or homosexual. And at the very time that Paul wrote this letter, Nero was the emperor. Now, Nero castrated a young boy by the name of Sporus and then married him, had a full ceremony, brought him to the palace, had a great procession, and made the boy his wife. And later on, the emperor lived with another man, and Nero was declared to be the other man's wife, so he reversed the roles. Now, in this list of sins that Paul writes out here, homosexuality is described, but it's described right along with other sins. And unfortunately, the others are sometimes not seen because that word sticks out to people who want to really find some way for the Bible to tell them that their legitimate feelings that they have of same-sex attraction, there's got to be a way, if God made me have these feelings, then there's got to be a way for me to live a lifestyle where I'm not offending God, but I'm also uh, living true to who I am. It is a sin to give in to that is what Paul is saying. And then, but not just give in once, but to give in to it as a lifestyle. As a lifestyle is what Paul says. No, if you give, if you're known as this, then you're not going to inherit the kingdom of God. Now, I understand the controversy surrounding this scripture. I understand the controversy around what I'm saying. My, my responsibility is to present to you what's in the word of God to try to rightly divide it, as Paul wrote to Timothy. But to allow you to have your own conviction of the Holy Spirit about what God means for you when you read this. There are a whole lot of sins that can separate us from God. I think there are a lot of people who denounce people who live a homosexual lifestyle and talk poorly about them, and yet they are more guilty of some of the other sins on this list, which means they also will not be inheriting the kingdom of God. Paul says, if you're a fornicator or an adulterer or you're covetous or you're a drunkard, you're an alcoholic, you have no right to condemn somebody else on the list like somebody who is living a lifestyle of homosexuality. And I, I think that Christians go wrong when they excuse a homosexual lifestyle and deny that it's sin, but they also do wrong when they single out that sin, homosexuality, as a sin that somehow God's uniquely angry with. Paul's point to the 
church in Corinth is, such were some of you. These sins characterize those people who will not inherit the kingdom of God. Christians can never be unloving, uncaring towards anybody who is on this list because they used to be right where these people are. And I think the church needs to do a better job at loving people who do have same-sex attraction and helping them navigate through a life of pointing their hearts towards Jesus. I don't deny that people have that. And I think that the Apostle Paul is saying there are people who have inclinations to many things, but don't give in to them. Don't give in to them. Don't do anything that's going to allow you to be in a place where you could maybe not inherit the kingdom of God. Christians should not and must not say that such sins in the lives of those who don't know Jesus are of no concern to God. That would be wrong. We have to communicate the message of salvation in Jesus Christ and then allow Jesus to save people. Matthew one twenty one. He will save his people from their sins. It's not your job or my job. Jesus saves. The Holy Spirit convicts. And it's up to the Holy Spirit to convict people of their need for a lifestyle change. All we can do is read the Bible, present the Bible, but we're not then meant to judge people based on whether they do what we think the Bible says. No, we are still meant to love one another. Love your neighbor as you love yourself, regardless of whether they're on this list or not. Love, 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 love should be what we are known for by your love. That's how people should know us. But there is a very plain plan for the church in Corinth. These things should never mark the life of a Christian. And if they do, they must be immediately repented of and forsaken. Paul says, hey, you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified. God's great work that he did in Jesus Christ is described in three terms. We're being washed, sanctified and justified. Washed, clean from sin by the mercy of God. Titus chapter 3 verse 5. We can have our sins washed away by calling on the name of Jesus. Acts 22.16, we're washed by work of Jesus on the cross. Revelation chapter 1 verse 5, by the word of God. Ephesians 5.26, we are sanctified. We're set apart away from the world, set apart unto God by the work of Jesus on the cross. Hebrews 10.10, by God's word. John 17.19, by faith in Jesus. Acts 26.18, and by the power of the Holy Spirit. Romans 15 verse 16, we are also justified. We're declared just right before the court of God, not merely not guilty, but declared as just before God. We're justified by God's grace through the work of Jesus on the cross. Romans 3.24, by faith, not our own deeds. Romans 3.28, God can take the kind of people described in this list and make them into the kind of people described here, washed, sanctified, and justified. That's how wonderful the work of Jesus on the cross is. It's amazing. And then Paul finishes off and he says, In the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God, without even trying 
to present any doctrine about the Trinity whatsoever, Paul, very naturally, understanding the truth about the character and nature of God, lists the three persons in the Godhead in connection with this great work of God in the life of the believer. All members of the Trinity are involved in us being washed, sanctified, and justified. So there's a lot in this today, a lot. And I'm going to allow you to just tell tell everybody else what you observe out of this because I know there's so much in it and there's a lot for a lot of people to observe, digest, and work out what this means for us. This is a great passage of Scripture that is a difficult passage of Scripture in the world in which we live to look at the truth of what the Bible says, but also remember the truth of what the Bible tells us to do and how we are meant to, to act. So what do you observe? What do you get out of that? And uh, I just want to pray for you as we finish up today. Heavenly Father, I thank you for the truth of your word. And I do pray, Lord, right now for every single person who struggles with, with any areas of addiction in their life, whether that be to something that the Bible tells them not to be addicted to or something that they know is actually causing them harm or something that may risk separating them from you. I pray, God, right now, just through the power of the Holy Spirit, that they would understand that they can do all things through Christ who strengthens them. And Lord, if they just feel like, oh, I just can't do it, I can't not do it, I pray, Lord, they'd understand they can do all things through Jesus Christ. And we thank you for the gift that Jesus, you gave us on the cross, that we're washed, sanctified, and justified because of you. And we, we take time right now to say, thank you, thank you, Jesus. In the name of the Lord Jesus, by the Spirit of our God. Amen. Thank you so much for listening. For more content, please don't forget to check out my YouTube channel, Anthony P. Richards. Have a great day.